0: Are we are we live now. I'm
1: recording. You're, you're, listening, you're listening to The Umbrella Cast. Mumbrella. Mumbrella. Mumbrella Cast.
2: Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows
1: and I'm Vivian Kelly.
2: Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby Hello And Zoe Wilkinson Hello And later in the Mumbrella cast I'll be talking to Crikey's editorial supremo,
3: Peter Frey, about
1: His triumphs and failures in publishing
3: I learnt a lot in that year In fact, I had a lot of fun in that year and I learnt a lot Crikey's philosophy We want to be, we want to be the fourth estate, right? We, we take great sucker from that, that title
1: and introducing new journalists to the industry.
3: But they have to be smart. They have to be willing. Uh, we'll train them to be the types of journalists we want them to be.
1: And I'll be talking to Bachelor host Osha Ginsberg about
4: how to make a show about love in a pandemic. They jump through flaming hoops, you know, covered in hand sanitizer. What success looks like. I can only control what I can control. And that is for me doing the very best job that I can do.
2: And working in the safest place in Melbourne.
4: It's brilliant because I feel so safe at work and I I wish other workplaces had that.
1: But first, the week's topics
2: The
4: ad spend bloodbath continues.
1: Why Publicis got rid of its ranty futurist.
2: The Lotto ad that sneered at social distancing.
1: And goodbye to Vodafone's Team Red. So let's start
2: this week with the latest news from SMI. We now know exactly how bad things were back in June. Britt, you wrote this one.
5: I did. Not only do we know how bad things were in June, but we also know how bad things were for the entire financial year. So obviously better for the financial year than in June itself. The financial year was down 14.7% and June's decline was 35.7%. So, better than May, May was over a 40% slide, but worse than April, which was interesting. So, I mean, again, SMI is kind of trotting out the line that things are looking up and that future spend looks good and promising and that things seem to be stabilizing, but they've also said that this year is the worst year in living memory.
2: Well. Well, let's explain who SMI are and what it is they look at.
5: So they're looking at the media agency funded ad spend. So it's not ad spend as a whole. It's specifically the media agency sector from the big holding groups. And they report on kind of where the spend is coming from, how it breaks down across different categories and across different formats, and then also is collecting data to see what future months look like in terms of how ad spend will play out there
2: so uh hannah obviously you talk to the media owners quite a lot i'm sure they keep an eye on the standard media index numbers just as much as anyone else um what's the market telling you are you picking up any optimistic vibes
0: it's hard isn't it because if I kind of echo what Brit said in terms of SMI, you know, every time figures come out, people say, oh, yeah, but there's green shoots on the horizon. Um, and I think people are starting to be optimistic about Q4, but as a lot of people have said to me, it's quite hard to be optimistic at the moment because we don't really know what's going to happen from one day to the next. So in theory, you know, you can start booking in a load of stuff for Q4, but then if we have another national outbreak or if Sydney faces the same thing Melbourne's currently facing, that might not actually come to fruition. I've heard anecdotally around that media spend or that, um, you know at how far your dollars will go in media spend has changed quite significantly from the beginning of the year a couple of people have told me that you will get 50% more coverage for your budget than you would have done at the beginning of the year um but yeah it's a bit it's a bit hard to look at i think it, it's kind of worth the looking at the breakdown of the smi numbers though if you look at for example cinemas back almost 90% obviously because of the massive lockdown so You know, that massive, those big 40% numbers look pretty bad on paper, but when you actually look at the breakdown, some sectors are doing okay, whereas outdoor and cinema obviously taking it a lot harder than others are.
2: Well, Viv, TV, television is the biggest traditional media market. Think TV, which is the industry marketing body, has just revealed uh, television industry's results for the financial year, so ending in June. I'm
1: going to guess that the result was bad. Look, it would have been groundbreaking if uh, television advertising revenue somehow climbed during a recession and a pandemic. So yes, uh, the result was bad. It was a decrease of spend of 22.1% year on year. So these are figures for commercial free-to-air television, excluding SBS, as well as subscription television and broadcast video on demand. Uh, And... So that's fallen 22.1% year on year. A bit like Britt and Hannah alluded to, the CEO of Think TV, Kim Portrait, did say signs are pointing to a better financial year for the one that we're currently in. Uh, But I don't actually have any evidence of that yet beyond people's sort of blind hope.
2: Uh, And Viv, you also covered Facebook and Google's global results this week. How have they been going?
1: I did. Uh, Facebook seems to be the one that had a good news story to tell, despite perhaps not generating many good news stories recently. While Twitter, for example, had a fall in ad revenue, which it attributed to civil unrest in the United States, the uncertainty around its political future, and the pandemic, Facebook's ad revenue actually grew, uh, which bucked the trend even of its global internet giants. Google, meanwhile, a bit like Twitter, faced a downturn in its advertising revenue and a bit like the traditional media players that they're all saying the same thing. It's the uncertainty. It's businesses pulling back. And a lot of advertisers for the likes of Facebook and Google, as much as we read about how they suck up so much of the ad dollars of big brands, it's also really, really small businesses which put their ad dollars on these platforms. And when restaurants and cafes and venues are closed or uncertain, they're also spending a lot less money following people around the internet and trying to find them on Facebook and tell them to come to the bottomless rosé brunch or whatever it may be. So it is interesting that despite that, Facebook has managed to buck the trend, but Twitter and Google have not.
2: Next the week in advertising. So we let's uh, let's start out west.
6: Starting out west, there was an ad for Lottery West that was pulled by Ad Standards this week. For depicting behaviour that breaches COVID-19 safety regulations.
2: Look, I must admit, I, couldn't, I could not believe that they decided to let this one go to air.
6: I know. I mean, I'll get to it in a minute after I've explained to our listeners what the ad sounds like, but it has to be one of the dumbest things I've ever read in my entire life. Um, so the ad, it first launched back in November before COVID was in Australia and causing havoc, but it shows a man who's clearly won the lottery while he's sitting on the toilet in a public bathroom and cheering and then coming out of the stall, not washing his hands and hugging a stranger. And back the, back in the day, that was apparently fine, although still disgusting if you ask me. But the new version of the ad that they put to air in, at the start of July had a different voiceover that was, there's Frank, Little does he know he's about to be hugged by a stranger in the toilet. There he is. Enter stranger. He's won Oz Lotto. Forget the elbow taps. He's gone all in. Oz Lotto Tuesday.
2: Honestly, forget the elbow taps. I mean, I just... uh, how, How can a bunch of marketing professionals, and, you know, there must have been a marketing team involved, there must have been a production team involved, no one at any stage in that, say to themselves, do we have any sort of responsibility around, you know, public service messaging with this ad?
6: I know. It just seems completely bizarre that someone would be thinking that it's funny to make a joke out of strangers potentially transferring, not even just COVID, but like like germs. It could be you know, E. coli at this point, who knows, but it just seems completely bizarre.
2: But the specific that they remade the ad to make it COVID appropriate, that for me is the unbelievable thing.
6: Yes. I mean, we've spoken about good COVID advertising and bad COVID advertising on this podcast. I feel like every week for the last two months and Something I said a couple of weeks ago was that a way that brands could go about advertising in COVID is making a joke and, you know, you get one run at a joke and if you stuff it up, you can never try it again. And this just has to be the ultimate example of like trying to make a COVID joke going wrong.
2: So what did Lottery West say to the Ad Standards Board when they did the investigation?
6: So the ad went to air, uh between Sunday the 5th of July and Tuesday the 7th of July and Lottery West admitted that once the ad had gone to air, it sort of realised that, oh, this could actually be in breach of the AANA Code of Ethics rules you about it. You mean when
2: there was a bunch of complaints about it?
6: In its response to the ad standards panel, it did say that once it went to air it realised it could be in breach and then they took it down straight away.
2: But presumably that was because the phone had been ringing from people saying, what is this ridiculous thing you've just put on air?
6: I mean, yes, there are more ways that consumers can complain about ads than just complaining to ad standards. I mean, social media does exist. So it said it took it down and so the panel sort of acknowledged that but also it still needed to deliberate on it and found that the ad was in breach of the code based on the fact that the overvoice made the joke about social distancing and was a portrayal of behaviours against the social distancing guidelines, which were in line with the community standards of health and safety, which is what ad standards rules over. So the ad was still pulled.
2: Did they apologise?
6: So in ad standards determinations, a complaint gets filed, a brand gets the opportunity to respond to the complaint. The ruling then happens between the community panel and then after that the brand gets another opportunity to respond and all they sort of said in response was confirming this ad is no longer in rota- rotation so there wasn't an apology involved
2: and something else from adland this week zoe wpp's i suppose you could call it a bespoke agency uh team red which is um the kind of the 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 multidisciplinary agency that wpp has or had for vodafone is is no more. So you should probably just maybe start by explaining how something like Team Red works.
6: Yes. So Team Red is a kind of faux agency model that comes together when a brand assigns multiple marketing accounts to um, the holding company. So in this case, the creative account was held by Wonderman Thompson and the media account was held by Wavemaker. So, Team Red is sort of formed from people across a number of different WPP agencies and they service this one account. Um, This way they're sort of offering the client like a unique, focused, bespoke experience with the agency group. I guess it must be a
2: bit of a downside for staff working on one of these bespoke things because you're only working on one brand, which must be a bit boring.
6: Yes, my understanding is you sort of get pulled from the agency that you're in and were hired to, and then you start out at this bespoke agency and just service that one account. And I've spoken to people in the industry about bespoke agencies before, and they have all said to me that your creatives, your strategists across sort of media and creative work all just get very stale just sort of looking at the one brand and the one piece of work.
2: So in other words it's a way of telling the, the client they're so special you haven't got to put up with our usual agencies we're going to create a whole agency just for you.
6: Yes and that seems like a quite of a, a strange concept to me and it always has that you would kind of in a way belittle your own agencies and your own sort of agency legacies by saying oh you know you don't need to work with just Wonderman Thompson and Wavemaker we can offer you you know just this extra special service like those agencies can't offer you special treatment but as a whole we can all together it just seems quite weird.
2: Look I suppose some of the explanation would probably be because um, it's a way of winning all of the business into one holding company and For the client, presumably, it's a way of driving down the cost, whereas if you gave these accounts across different holding companies, it might cost you more overall, perhaps.
6: Yes, but also by forming a bespoke agency, does that not kind of show that perhaps the connections between your creative agencies and your media agencies are slightly weaker if you need to bring all these people together in one group?
2: Well, I guess that's the argument. Is, is, And is that the reason why Team Red has been disbanded then, do we think?
6: Um, I have a bit of a theory, and that's coming from Jens monses the WPP-AUNZ CEO's strategic plan that he announced earlier this year, uh, which was to sort of streamline the business, sort of reduce the number of agency brands that are out there. Um, Team Red, of course, last year was named in the, court case with the former managing director Carmel Williamson who alleged a lack of support and a boys club culture led to her needing psychological help following her departure from the agency but that was settled in November and when I spoke to Vodafone about sort of the dissolving of Team Red they really just said that it was a new direction for them. All of the business that Team Red serviced is still with WPPAUNZ, although last year the global media account for Vodafone was shifted to the Dentsu Aegis Network's CARA and at the time they said it wouldn't affect the local relationship with Wavemaker and Team Red in Australia. But I think that is something that at Mumbrella and maybe across the industry people will be keeping their eyes on.
2: I think it's one of those cliches you sometimes see in trade press around the world when maybe an account might be up for up for grabs the uh, the, the the lazy journalistic phrase is the the uh, the incumbent agency is on red alert next viv talks bachelor with osha gunsberg
1: is your publication the best in australia and new zealand think your editor deserves to be awarded for their outstanding work is your sales team the best in the industry Mumbrella's Virtual Publish Awards will recognise the best work in consumer, business-to-business and custom publishing for businesses of all sizes. In support of the industry, we've lowered the entry fees across the board. This means that all entries submitted before midnight next Friday, August 14th, will pay just $250 per submission. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash publishawards for more info. I'm joined on the Mumbrella Cast now by Osher Ginsberg, host of many things, including The Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, The Masked Singer, and his own suite of podcasts. Anything yeah, else you'd right. like to add to that, Osher?
4: Um, uh, I wrote a book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. I'm currently I'm currently in uh, in in Melbourne under a beanie. Carrying work permits so I can get to and from a studio to make the most COVID-friendly show of 2020, The Masked Singer. And um, far away from my wife and kids. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of what's happening right now.
1: Speaking of being COVID-friendly, doing the rounds on Channel 10 and the ad breaks at the moment is lots of promos for The Bachelor. Yeah. And the moment that you have to tell the cast that you can no longer keep them safe what was that moment like was that actually the first time they were hearing that news were you the guy that was letting them know for the first time that there's a pandemic and they have to go home
4: yeah that was really weird that was really weird telling being the person to break it to Lockie and the ladies that this is what was going on in the outside world was a very difficult thing to do i know that people pay me out a lot for whispering um but that is genuinely my voice when i'm trying to have empathy with a person who i am essentially breaking up with on behalf of somebody else um at that moment when i had to let everybody know that you know the borders are closed the international borders are closed there are you know entire states in lockdown people you love and care about are will definitely be affected by what I am now telling you. That was really tough. That was really a tough thing to do. But um, I'm really – I cannot say enough about Network 10 and Warner Brothers um, who produced the show and how hard they worked to make sure that our workplace could be safe, is safe, and that we could – they worked so hard. They jumped through flaming hoops, um, you know, covered in hand sanitizer to make sure – that we could make a show that involves people pashing during a global pandemic.
1: (laughs) So you have uh, resumed production and at the moment, Bachelor in Paradise is screening and and one of the things that I've loved and hated about it is seeing how close everyone is and just seeing people so casually touch and hug and not use the phrases social distancing and COVID-19 and, I think it will be really interesting to watch the bachelor and, and those people grapple with the the transition. Do you think that people will want to see the realities of of love in a pandemic? I
4: I think I think they absolutely will because this will, you know, the the bachelor's generally, you know, what is it? It's a love story, but it's a love story with a bit of fantasy involved. We don't just, you know, we don't just send someone to the movies. No, we, we send them to a floating big screen on the Hawkesbury River and they get there by seaplane. You know, <laughs> they still watch a movie, you know, but <laughs> there's a fantasy involved in, in making it happen. This really brings everything about our show and really democratizes it and go, no, 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 we now have to help these people find love, which is what they came to us to try and find. We have to help them find love using... The same tools that everybody else has, which is uh, in many cases a webcam or even just the camera on your phone. And they are now navigating the ins and outs of trying to form and maintain a romantic relationship and romantic interest without being able to touch each other the same way as the rest of us. And it's really, really good. It's so good to watch because um, what I found really fascinating, Viv, was that um, when we shoot our show – uh, the, the nature of reality is we're shooting on the, you know the tool does in some way influence what happens in that we are, we've got people on quite long lenses so the cameras are a little ways away and so people can have a conversation and someone will be five or ten meters away and after a little while you don't really realize you're being filmed. And that does sort of change the way that you speak to each other or it it's influence it in a subtle way. You know, any of us, uh, we're all on webcams right now making this podcast. So, we're all aware that, you know, we're being filmed even though you're not seeing it. I'm sitting here in my pajamas a bit self-conscious, so I put a beanie on, right? Um, so, I have changed my behavior because of what we're doing, right? That's all I'm saying. To have suddenly everyone on webcams, to have suddenly everyone a foot and a half away from the camera and being on camera the whole time it makes it so much more it makes it very immediate it makes it very uh, interesting engaging because you we're now we've now got the subjective shot we're now seeing exactly what lockie sees because we never people don't ever look down the barrel in the bachelor all right they never break the fourth wall but on this season they absolutely do so you've got the girls saying you know, you know, really beautiful, romantic things. You got him saying really heartfelt, emotional things straight into the camera. And so we're watching it and, oh, we feel it. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I'm really thrilled, actually, the way they managed to figure it out because it's going to make a, for a fantastic experience to watch and hopefully uh, a far more engaging season than you might be expecting.
1: So, all these years down the track into the franchise, what does success look like for you, for the program now? Is it ratings? Is it social media chatter? Is it how many bachelor babies there are? Um,
4: look, I really cannot be I, – I can't do anything around any of those outcomes, all right? All I can really do is – you know, in these times, Viv, like – I. When there is so much that is out of our control, I can only control what I can control, and that is for me doing the very best job that I can do and me to make sure that everyone on my team, everyone on the team that I'm a part of can do the very best job that they can do. And if we all do that, we give those people who have put their lives on hold to come on our show to hopefully find love the very best chance of finding what they came to find. And honestly, once that finale happens and once you know we we call a wrap on the finale and you know we do that final interview with our with our couple or with nobody in the case of Nick Cummins that's it we go home and there's nothing more I can do so if the ratings come that's really nice it means we might get to come around again if the ratings don't come there's nothing well, I I know that I did the very best that I could do to make the best show I could possibly make um so for me honestly Success for me, personally, looks like, you know, it is the team running the very best it can and am I doing everything I can to make sure the team is running the best it can and enjoy every single day at work? Because I don't control who gets promoted. I don't control the promos. I don't control the programming. I don't control if they're going to, you know, put us up against this show or that show or, on, you know, I don't control any of those things. I can only control how well I can do my job and how professional I am on the day. and. At the end of the day, I'll go home and I f- that's success for me, you know. It's really nice to have the ratings. It's really nice to come around and have another year at doing the job and it's really nice to not have to go and hunt for another way to pay the mortgage. That's really great. But I've got no control over whether that happens or not. I can only do my job the best I can.
1: So speaking of control, th- there are things that you don't have control over such as casting, but y- you do seem to take the time online often to address audience concerns around whether it's diversity, whether it's people of colour on the programs that you're on, or whether it's the mental health of contestants on this year's Bachelor in Paradise. Why do you take the time to engage with that and and respond uh, to those concerns and questions?
4: Um, Because I feel it's important. You know, I'm the forward-facing person on the show i'm the uh i'm the only one that engages during uh broadcast um i i'm not going to lift the lid completely because that would break confidentiality but i think it's important that while it is um i i just want to bring some i guess i just want to bring some reality into um the reality of reality (laughs) We're a workplace like any other, and the well-being of the people that are on our work site is important. And, um, you know, I I think that's important for people to realize it, you know, and none of us would be comfortable with going to work somewhere that would, you know, be damaging to a person. But you're never going to ever, ever, ever know the level of support, the level of access, who accessed, how they accessed, how long after the show they accessed it for. You'll never know, but you just have to know that it's there and that the, the, the people who are involved in the show um, are in their hearts incredibly good people. And, um, you know, from my immediate story producer's to the showrunners, to the executive producer, to the director, to the network executive, to the commissioning executive, to the CEO of the company. They're all women and powerful women, strong women who in their hearts are are, are really, you know, just vigilant uh, as far as how the, the integrity of our workplace and just understand that that goes all the way down the line and not everything makes the cut. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and a bit of a gear shift, the other program you have coming up is yeah. The Masked Singer, which when we spoke last year uh, you were so excited because you said you really got to be yourself on set and yeah. and dance yeah. and, and relax and, and be flamboyant and, and, and ridiculous in a way. Yeah. C- can that fun translate in, in 2020 with everything that's going on in the world? You mentioned you're filming in Melbourne. Can it still be yeah. Can it still be fun for you?
4: Are you kidding? The studio is the only place where I'm not wearing a mask. <laughs> it's, the, it's, I'm free. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I you know, I, I, I fly around the shiny floor and. And just giggling glee when I see who's under the mask and it's the best fun ever and I've got this in- these incredible people along for the ride in Danny, Dave and Jackie and Ursula who's amazing. Ursula is so good. Um, it's a, It's a great amount of fun. It is a completely silly, preposterous, shiny floor show and it is everything that we need right now. It is everything we need right now. Um, it is well and truly, come on, kids, shower wrap, Jami's in, 7.30, you can stay up, let's go. And it is just the best guessing game ever. Um, you know, I think the trophy cost us 22 bucks or something to make. Like, it's not an expensive trophy. Like, there's it, there's really no re- – it's just it's completely – There's there's nothing to it. It's completely meaningless and it is fantastic. I love it. I love it so much, and that how just preposterous it is. And the, the costumes are just next level. Tim Chappell is like, they don't accidentally give you a BAFTA or a Tony or, a, or an Oscar. Like, the guy is a genius. All right. The people who are under the masks, oh my goodness. I mean, COVID is a very serious, dangerous thing that we as a community have to face and beat if we want to have any chance of, you know, a uh, life. And the international border closures have really helped the people who (laughs) have decided to come on our show. (laughs) You can't go on tour. You can't go make a movie. You can't do whatever other things you might do overseas, right? And um, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. It's such a fun show. The crew are great. I Honestly, there's two places I feel incredibly safe, at home and at work. Warner Brothers and Channel 10 have worked so, so, so hard to make sure that we are... As safe as houses, and to be honest, like I'll go and I'll do another gig here or there, like a you know a shoot for this or a shoot for that. It's nowhere near the level of what we have at at work and i'm I really hope other workplaces can kind of see the level of um control that we have and just understand that that's what it takes to make a show you know uh, television is a very intimate gig you're often in a very confined space people are touching you you've got audio you've got makeup you've got wardrobe you've got people touching your face with their hands you know you've got all kinds of stuff it's a very closely packed job um and like even down to like my audio uh, guy shep he won't hand me a microphone he will hold the mic in his hand, he'll have the, the the wipe in his hand, in his other hand with gloves on, he'll wipe it down and then hand it to me. So he's seen that he's sanit- – I've seen that he's sanitized it and he'll hand it to me. Like it's no one hands me anything that hasn't already been wiped down and that's everyone. That's everyone we're working with and it's brilliant. It's brilliant because I feel so safe at work and I, I wish other workplaces had that um, and they could feel that safe going to work because, Jesus, man, they've really – They've gone really hard on it, and I'm really grateful for it. Um, But it's so much fun. It's so good. It's such a silly, fun, 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 fun show. It's brilliant. And I know
1: you can't spoil anything, but are there moments when the mask comes off that you are genuinely shocked at who it is?
4: Absolutely. Every single time. (laughs) Every single time. Because last year I could touch them, all right? There was two that I got just by touching them. Um my brain, our brains do a really weird thing. And I found this really fascinating in that um, we don't just recognize people by sight. There must be something else. There has to be something else because there was two times last year, once when I was standing in the tunnel in one of the mouths on the side of the stage and I felt someone come up behind me and grab my ass, I'm like, holy shit, that's Millsy. And I turn around <laughs> and it's the, it's the first time I'd ever seen the wolf. I'm like, oh, oh, it's you. You know, I just knew. My brain went, oh, we know that. And the second time when Unicorn came out, Unicorn couldn't see. And so Unicorn stood out and she stood maybe five degrees off off center and I had to just kind of adjust her slightly. And I grabbed her hand. The moment her fingers touched behind a glove, I went, oh, Denny, hi. Like <laughs> like that. I can't see her. I can't. And there was two others I got by smell because I'd met them before and they wore the same cologne. Um. But I can't get that close to them this year. I can't touch them. I can't stand that close. So I am completely clueless and it is brilliant. It's so much fun. It's so much fun because, like you know, but it's the job. That's the job. The job is to get out there and have fun. The job on The Bachelor is to help other people fall in love and ultimately then break up with them at the end of the show. So my job has has to – that's my job. It's not about me, that show. Similarly, the is not about me. The mask Singer is all about the mast and all about the panel. I'm just there to direct the traffic. Um, but I have – God, I have so much fun doing it. And I hope you see that because I'm having the time of my life out there also because I'm not having to wear a mask. It's like the few hours of the day that I'm not breathing through a cloth.
1: And one final question, Osha. You speak on your own podcast about uh, – trying to do one thing each day to make today better than yesterday, small yes. steps you can take to sort of get through a difficult time or even just to make things more manageable. What is the the one thing that you're going to do today to make it better than yesterday?
4: Uh, well, we're speaking, I don't know when you're going to publish this, but we're speaking the day after we found out that I'm going to need to quarantine for two weeks um, when I get back to sydney which means um i'm going to miss both my son's first birthday and my first father's day uh of uh, you know i've been a stepfather for a long time and my beautiful stepdaughter georgia has given me cards every year um and this is my first father's day with wolfie and i'll miss them both because i'll be in a hotel somewhere so i've been managing uh, Audrey and I have been talking all morning and so the thing that I'm going to try to do to make today better than yesterday is try as hard as I can to support Audrey from afar which will probably involve uh, a lot of um, face timing and just trying to be there for her and that's that's all I can do today I can't change it but I can change the way I feel about it so um, I'm just going to do as much as I can to support my wife today and that's that's what I'm going to try and do.
1: All right. Well, Osha Ginsberg, good luck with the lockdown. <laughs> good luck Thanks. with the solo Father's Day. And good luck yeah. guessing the masked singers without having <laughs> the advantage of them grabbing you on the behind. Thank you for joining yeah. us today on the cast.
4: Oh, look, I'm grateful to be here. And honestly, I'm grateful to be working. I think we really are. I think we're one of the only crews that are working anywhere in the country. And to be a part of that is a real privilege. Uh, It really, really is. There's a lot of people out of work. You know, there's a lot of people in our industry that are are out of work and it's going to be very tricky to get those people back to work. You know, you might think, oh, football's off. Well, so is every sort of member of that broadcast team, which is in the hundreds on those days. And there's a, a lot of people with decades and decades of skills behind them who might not be able to transfer those skills to any other gig. You know, you might be the best CCU operator that's ever lived, it's not going to make you very good at anything else because all you've done is stare at monitors all day since you know 1988. And those, you know, there's a lot of people suffering in um in television at the moment. And so to be at work, all of us are incredibly aware of how lucky we are. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really grateful to be here today. I really,
1: really am. Next, how outspoken COVID tweets cost an agency bigwig his gig.
2: So, Tom Goodwin is a regular on the conference speaker circuit, including here in Australia, or at least he was back when we used to have industry conferences. Until the start of this week, he was head of futures and insight at Publicist Group globally, and now he's not. Britt, what happened?
5: It all played out on Twitter and made for some quite entertaining reading. So, Tom Goodwin retweeted a tweet that said, we are losing the number of people who died on 9-11 every two days. Important to note as well that Tom is based in the US. So he said in response, I find the total obsession with COVID deaths over all other deaths entirely gruesome. 7,500 Americans die every day, but only the ones with this precise new virus matter. So then another Tom, Tom Morton, who is Chief Strategy Officer in the US for RGA, responded quite polite, but, you know, pushed back on that idea a little bit, said that, you know, it's a new disease, there's no cure. He said at the end, please no more clickbait contrarianism, you're better than this. And that's where it kind of heated up. So Tom Goodwin then responded and said, Apologies for caring about the thousands dying from suicide, delayed cancer treatment, delayed elective surgery, etc. It's not fucking contrarianism, it's basic morality. Get off your lofty perch and give a shit about the vulnerable. Your sourdough baking homeschooling works well for you. Seriously, Tom, your double income working from home moral high ground judgment makes me fucking sick. Do you think I'm trying to jerk off to the S&P 500 or do you think maybe I have a little more empathy and can see life in tatters in all directions well beyond the Hudson Valley. By all means think I'm wrong argue with the data but never ever doubt my intentions and never think this is simple. Tom Morton then kind of came back I think he blocked Tom Goodwin but took a screenshot of those tweets and said guess my professional relationship with Tom Goodwin is over. So that's what went down.
2: Uh, And then the next we heard publicists had decided to part ways with Tom Goodwin.
5: Yeah, and their statement was a little bit more forceful than what sometimes these statements usually are. Sometimes it's by mutual decision or it's billed as a resignation, which often, you know, is negotiated in these sorts of things. But publicists said, you know, these comments are inappropriate, basically, they don't reflect us and we've parted ways with, with Tom. So, yeah, it all happened very swiftly.
2: Yeah. So let me bring in, um, Vivian and Hannah. Um, I suppose to find look, I mean, in some ways this is a debate. It feels like I'm surprised we're still having it, you know, 10 years on. Um, it would seem that simply putting, uh, in your bio, the views expressed are my own and not my employer may, maybe don't, uh, inoculate you against, um, all consequence. Um, I, Are you surprised to see it go down like this?
1: I think what's interesting with this case is Tom was employed because he has strong opinions, because he can ignite debate, because he can equal parts frustrate and inspire people. He has a huge following on social media platforms and he's been known to come after people before who disagree with him or who don't sit right with him. Once this went down, other people sort of started coming forward and sharing screenshots of the time that Tom Goodwin had trolled them or spoken to them unkindly on the internet. But you employ people like that knowing that's who they are and and when it works for you, it works. And when there's a backlash, suddenly you let them go. I think there's a few things at play though COVID is particularly emotional, particularly because we we can't see the end yet. So minimising any kind of death or making comparisons of scale doesn't really stack up for people who are so anxious. And I spoke to an agency boss here in Australia and he said, the thing is, Tom Goodwin's points are actually really interesting. We could face a health crisis from people who don't get elective surgeries, from people who don't get screened for cancer, from people who put things off and the mental health toll and all of that. But they said the aggression with which he went at it was the problem and that's why publicists had to take a stand because he made it personal. He played the person, not the ball. Uh, by talking about, you know, your sourdough and your family when actually it could have been a really, really interesting argument even though it was emotional and even though it was, you know, interesting and divisive. It's just because it got personal that I think was the problem.
0: I think we have already at some point during this pandemic talked about like whether it's too soon to have these conversations. And I think particularly in the US, it's quite easy for us in Australia, possibly not in Melbourne currently, but it's quite easy for us in Australia to be a bit more removed from it because, you know, on paper compared to some other areas, we look like we've got our pandemic under control. I am almost surprised let's say that they did part ways with him and that they parted ways with him so swiftly because if you look at the example of a lot of other people who have been known to mouth off on twitter and you know then they get a slap on the wrist for it the really obvious option in my mind that sticks out is Elon Musk who repeatedly steps over the line on twitter to the point where he's been you know questioned of kind of leading investors and all that sort of thing on twitter and yet hasn't really received any severe smackdown for it. So I think I kind of second Viv's thoughts in that it's hard to keep these people in your company and then when something like this happens, actually surprised and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he went this far when you know he went this far and you know he would do it again. But I think I'm quite impressed that they did come forward and made such a quick and such a, you know, harsh judgment in this case, didn't beat around the bush and didn't kind of, you know take the easy way out, especially because these are deaths that are very, very current in people's minds that we're still facing an ongoing issue with. And while, yes, that debate is one that needs to be had, A, Twitter isn't exactly the most nuanced platform on which to have it, but also, you know, slamming each other from sourdough starters probably isn't the right way to start it either.
2: Well, Viv, um, I want to build on something, um, that, that, that you kind of said about the, 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 tone of the conversation rather than the, the substance. I, hey, you know, shortly before we recorded this, I, I, you know, chatted to someone who, you know, has sort of, uh, crossed paths with Tom, you know, during some of his Australian visits. Um, and, you, you know, what, I think one of the views in the industry is that his social media persona, is probably a sharper edged version of himself. You know, he's a, I think he's a fairly sort of uh, pleasant person to deal with in person. And I I think sometimes you get people, they maybe in part, they almost play a character or an exaggerated version of themselves. Or the other thing is, I think maybe, do you think sometimes people just don't, don't actually have awareness of how they're coming across when they're prosecuting an argument on social media?
1: Uh, I think it would be unfair to Tom Goodwin's intelligence character and former position at Publicist to say he's not aware of how he comes across online when that's how he's built so much of his opinions and indeed career. I think you're correct, though, that sometimes it is performative. I saw Tom Goodwin speak as part of Nine's Big Ideas store and he was incredibly tame, incredibly calm and almost too kind to the other panellists sometimes where people were directing questions at Tom and he'd give quite a short answer and then say, I want to hear what the other panellists think, constantly deferring to other people's opinions rather than indulging in his own. I think, again, we've spoken about performative uh, aggression before, though, and even if it is fake and even if it is for the sake of generating headlines and, and drama, that's problematic too. You know, that old line that people such as Andrew Bolt are actually very kind and considered, that may be true and it may be great for those around Andrew Bolt, but if they are super aggressive or they are super inflammatory on their media platform, even if it's fake, that's a part of who they are, that's who they're projecting and they do have to take accountability for that.
5: Interestingly, Tom is very aware of the point that Hannah made that Twitter isn't necessarily the most nuanced platform, the point that Viv made about how do you, you know, convey tone in an online setting. I'm not quite sure how this came about, but about a month ago, early in July, so well before all of this happened, his pinned tweet is a tweet that he put out then with rules for his feed. So, something happened, he left Twitter for a bit, and then he came back posting these rules. And he said, one of them is, um, there's 11 rules total, but number eight is, the internet is a bad place for hard conversations. Let's see what we can do to change that. Let's be civil, assume good intentions, and come to this with an open mind. A good day is one where you change your mind. So, He's very aware of the complexities of all of this. I think Viv's exactly right in that the idea itself, I think, was one to be interrogated and not necessarily offensive. It was definitely the tone. But weirdly, he's kind of stuck by the comments. I mean, he did say, Tom Morton's blocked me. I can't see what he said, but, you know, I assume I'd apologise if I could. But then he's also kind of kept saying, I'm not a voice for publicists. What's the point of having a voice if you can't use it? What's the point of kind of being people in these positions and thinking about these ideas if we can't then discuss them? So I think he's very aware of what he was doing. Interestingly, because of the time zone difference and stuff, I would be interested to see what time he tweeted um, and whether or not, you know, if a 2am if a tweet would carry a different implication than a 4pm tweet. But yeah, it's an interesting...
1: To answer that question, Brittany, yes, 2am <laughs> tweets do carry a different implication than a 4pm tweet.
5: But yeah, I think Tom is obviously very well versed in the complexities of social media. He he didn't quite navigate them this time.
2: And Britt, it not the first time that publicist group have had to get rid of a global exec after making controversial comments the same happened with kevin roberts almost exactly four years ago this time around though it did happen faster um so do do we think maybe they've learned a lesson
5: Yes, I think the Kevin Roberts situation was slightly different. Roberts was global boss of Saatchi and Saatchi and had a very interesting job title for publicist group as well. He was chief coach at the holding company. And he made some controversial comments about women in leadership. So he said that he didn't really think that the lack of women in leadership roles was a problem. You know, they're happy kind of doing other stuff, basically. It was A little bit more complex and nuanced and elaborated on than that, but that was kind of the distilled idea. Similarly to Tom Goodwin, faced some backlash, but I think the fact that Robert's already had his retirement lined up in a bigger role, a CEO as opposed to Tom's role, I get that there may have been more of a delay there in ironing that one out because The resolution to that was that he essentially brought forward his retirement and handed him his resignation. His response was also kind of different to Tom's in that he said in his statement, "You know, basically, I was wrong. I've embarrassed my company. I've you know offended people, and for that, I'm really sorry." As opposed to the line that Tom's kind of taken, which is, "I'm not a publicist spokesperson. This is my platform." this is where I can talk about ideas that I care about.
2: Next, I'll be talking to journalism's great survivor, Peter Frey. Joining me now is Peter Frey, editor-in-chief of Crikey. And Peter, I was reflecting, I think I have probably interviewed you more than any other senior editorial director or editorial executive over the years. And, and certainly you're one of the longest surviving. I was looking back at an early Mumbrella interview from 2009 when you're editor in chief at the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the print edition back then. Mm. Um, and one of the things I found myself reflecting on is the status of editors mm. of the city newspaper was huge then and I'm not sure it's quite such a thing anymore Mm. um what happened
3: (laughs) oh that's a great question I mean the short answer is I got older but anyway no the answer to your question um I think you're dead right I think the status of editors has been um one of the side effects broadly I think of the rise and rise of digital uh whereby Uh, The editor was, I think, in print, a kind of a, dare I say, you know, not a godlike figure, but certainly someone who had their hands on the the levers, and it was sort of under no illusion as to who the editor was. Um, In the digital universe, of course, there's all sorts of editors, uh, and that's one of the joys of continuous publishing, I suppose. And um, the kind of Partly that's to blame. I think when we let the consultants run the joint, so I, from a Fairfax point of view, in particular, when consultants came in and they looked at the flow of copy and the flow of decision making, and you know we're told to make this a twenty four seven digital first kind of operation, uh, a lot of the consultants kind of had this idea that, wow, you need to, you know this why would be this one person looking like this massive roadblock at the end of the day. We must blow that person up. I mean, they weren't really being personal. They are just we must blow up this idea, and get a flow of editors. So I think that's partly it. I think also if you look, for instance, at um, the recent events, say at The Age, uh, you know, you, the 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 idea of the first. So when Alex Lavelle was you know departed recently a month mm. ago, I mean, when you think back, you know, back you know ten years, but certainly. 20 or 30 years, the idea of the editor-in-chief of The Age getting publicly shafted or forced to resign or whatever happened, you know, it's a mystery, right? Uh, But anyway, um, it would cause outrage. It it would have been, you can imagine someone, you know, sacking Graham Perkin. I mean, they would have burnt the age down. So um, I think that goes a little bit to the status broadly of news media in general. Sad to say it, but I think that's true. Um and I think also, yes, to answer your question, yeah, you know, I think it's proliferation of editors so as reduced the currency of editors. Um I, I'm an editor because I don't know how to do anything else.
2: <laughs> yeah, because you've been an editor for a long time. I've actually got your LinkedIn profile open in front of me. So you, 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 you've you sort of spent most of your or a lot of your early career with Fairfax, you know, eventually had sort of leadership roles, deputy editor at the Sun Herald. You edited the Sunday Age, you edited the Canberra Times, um, and then, yeah, the Sydney Morning Herald where, where, where I think our paths, our paths first crossed. I think the night you won newspaper of the year and I had to yeah, kind yeah. of grab you who came off stage and congratulate you and interview you. And I seem to remember you, your, your very arrogant message from stage to the, to the audience was, we'll see you again next year, which I, I think you actually did then win as well, didn't
3: you? Yeah, we did. We did it two years in a row. There is a curse, I think, the pamper curse. If you win the Newspaper of the Year tw- two years in a row, you get sacked the next year.
2: <laughs> well, I remember a- about that time I also interviewed you um, – where um we, we, we chatted this this was when you were you, you you were championing the um the National Times, which was a a, a brand that Fairfax had revived as an opinion brand. Mm. And um you uh, you 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 very boldly predicted that the uh the National Times was making a uh, Crikey and the Punch both look a little shallow.
3: And the interesting thing about the National Times, it's the, in a way, the first time that the editor of The Age, the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and the editor of Online have got together, created something, and and that is really working. I mean, it's it's actually um, making Crikey and the Punch look rather shallow. Given that
2: the Punch is long dead, the National Times has been re-retired, and here you are at Crikey, does does seem something of a full circle over the last decade.
3: Indeed. It should, you should be careful what you say, shouldn't you, really? But um, I think the national t- I think at the time it was an interesting time because those digital opinion places, you know, um, they were kind of still quite new. And I think Crikey, you know, had a pretty clear run at it for a good 10 years before both news and Fairfax caught on that there was actually something happening here. And, and, and in part, you know, and I'm sure we, you know, we talk a little bit about that was that realization of how opinion, opinion pieces can drive traffic. And I think that was a slow dropping penny for both news and Fairfax. And of course, being a good Fairfax boy, I predicted that uh, the National Times would be uh, the superior product. Um, Interestingly, though, I think, you know, I think the National Times was a good idea, um, Possibly at the end of the day, not the best title, but you know, nonetheless, you know, the punch was a pretty good title, and that didn't last. So,
2: and people who don't remember that was that was News Corp's attempt at, uh, yeah. at, at comment based publishing, and and I suppose it, it comes down to this is a good good time probably to s- start speaking about um, Crikey, sort of, I guess where it was at then, but where it is now. Yeah. One of the sort of questions for me about Crikey, and this is probably a question that comes from being a reader, is obviously what it offers is a lot of analysis of what's going on, a, a opinion and analysis. And I, you know, and I, I, I guess the model could never allow exhaustive on the ground reporting of every single topic that it talks about. So I wonder, could, could Crikey inherently exist if the deeper reporting of the news, cause the nine as it is now, but Fairfax as it was then, the TV networks, etc., could quite exist without the broad reporting base on which to comment. Do you think?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think my, um, I'm going to take that. I'm going to give you two uh, two answers to that. My preferred answer would be to say um, yes, it would, and and I and and the reason why. Is that a? It, it's doing a little bit more um, original deep reporting itself through the Ink uh, team. Uh, you know that's relatively modest, but I think pound for pound, uh, what we're putting out with Ink probably these days, given there's so little investigative reporting in uh, you know mainstream media, I think pound for pound we're probably doing more than most. Um, so I, I don't think we're necessarily feeding off the day-to-day daily news. I mean, I see Crikey as a sort of an antidote, really, to the daily news. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before, this idea that news is everywhere and news will find me. You know, I mean, that's one of the curses of our times, right? That news is everywhere, and if it's important, it will find me anyway. Uh, and now what Crikey is, is sort of dismisses that as a premise for anything and says, no, no, we're going to find you, but you're going to, have to pay for it. And what we offer you is this sort of insight, analysis, deep feed uh, that you'll get. You'll get nowhere else. I would, though, to concede the point. I would have to concede the point that some of the things that Crikey does does absolutely feed off what else is happening in the news media. i would be silly to pretend otherwise. In particular, I suppose when we spend a lot of time writing about the the news media, in particular, I suppose news and I don't really make too many excuses for that. News is such a major player in our market and the world. Uh, so this is
2: news with a capital N oh, as Corp, in News Corp. Corp. Sorry, news
3: Corp yeah. Um, I think News Corp is, is such a major player that, you know, we probably, you know, offer a critique of that. I mean, the truth is that if we're not doing that, I mean, the media is absolutely terrible at reporting itself. Uh, and I, I don't I'm not only talk about news. I mean, news is particularly terrible. I mean, you would never know that James Murdoch have resigned uh, if you hadn't read Crikey, I think, or, or or the or the Herald. But um, but the Herald isn't particularly that much better at reporting uh, itself. And yet, you know, we we want to be we want to be the Fourth Estate, right? We we take great sucker from that that title. We, you know, the idea that we are often the Fourth Estate of of if you like the pillar of society and that we're there to critique and hold power to account and all those good things. And yet we don't really hold ourselves to account. And I often think that um, without getting too, you know, inside the beltway, I think it would be useful if news media looked at itself a bit more and, and was kind of a little bit more honest about what's going on. You know, look, let's, you know, let's cut to the chase. Clearly revenues are under a great deal of threat a great deal of threat and and we can see that in in any manner of ways you know redundancies and the size of what's left of newsprint or the you know all sorts of ways and, and there's no secret there and yet um you know uh a news a business pages will report virtually every other sector apart from its from its own and And I think, so therefore, you know, Crikey needs to be there to report a little bit about that because the news media is such an important part of our society, even given its uh, dire straits at the moment.
2: Well, look. There's a lot to unpack in there. Let's maybe zig back first of all to you. You touched on Ink, and that's quite an interesting funding model as well. You know, the f- the fact that um effectively, you know, pri- private media, the owners of Crikey, have found some quite interesting ways of funding different parts of its journalism over the years. And Ink's a good example of
3: that. Yeah, no, it is, and I. I mean, praise to Eric Beecher, who I think is. Uh, apart from being my boss, is probably a bit of a national treasure. He would hate me before. So he's a former Gold
2: Walkley winner, um, again, editor-in-chief at Fairfax, um, and now proprietor.
3: Yes, and he's been the proprietor of, crikey, for, well, 15 years. So um, he, um, you know, Eric is, even though he's, you know, I know what a, I would I dare to, I'm not going to mention his age because I actually don't know it. But let's say, you know, he's a bit older than I am, and I'm old. So um, uh, he wakes up every morning with this great passion for journalism and news media and a great passion for what Crikey does and what the other, you know, the Mandarin and smart company do, does as well. And part partly why I really like working with Eric is that he's very innovative about how things get funded because, he, you know, private media is a small operation, right? It's never going to be uh, the size of News Corp. I mean, or or even the size of nine, obviously, or Fairfax, even if the City More Hero keeps shrinking. Um so it's never going to be that. So it's always going to have to be a bit wily. and uh Eric has you know got all sorts of ideas about how that can happen. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. In the ta- in terms of Inc., yeah, he managed to, to persuade uh John B. Fairfax and uh, Cameron Riley to put some money in uh and and show a growth in subscribers. Now, I think there was a, the Inc uh, team has shrunk a little bit. I mean, I'm just, I'm going to mention this in case someone else points it out. It shrunk a little bit. But um, that's, you know, I don't, you never really question someone's ambition, right? So I think Inc's done some really good reporting and it needed to get, uh, you know, an, a new model. I mean, broadly speaking, I think I take a lot of um, sucker from the Crikey funding model, f- full stop. The idea that we can see how many people are prepared to pay for news, you know. Yeah, and
2: let's talk about one of the other experiments you did there. It it wasn't that long ago since you you tried uh, choose what you pay.
3: Mm. Mm. How did that work? Well, it was based on the idea that when you go to a posh restaurant, uh, you know, you never buy the cheapest bottle. You buy the second cheapest bottle. I know I do. And some people, you know, depending on the occasion, might even buy the most expensive bottle. Uh, so we gave people this sort of smorgasbord of, uh, four options and look, I think it worked really well. Um, uh, the top, you know, price range, uh, we had, you know, several hundreds of people signing up to that. We had a, a massive response to the, the lower two price ranges, the, the third price range, probably not as much, but so certainly we picked up a lot of, um, we picked up about, um, subscription growth of about, Forty to fifty percent out of that. You know, not just that, but this year, but that was the icing on the cake, you know, so far this year. So I think that idea of uh pay what you choose choose what you pay is a, a really interesting idea. It kind of gives um it kind of fits in with the kind of broader model of giving the audience a bit of power, right? So we talk about audience uh and being audience centric. And uh, so one way of making yourselves audience centric is to say, hey, yeah, we want you to buy our product. We, you, if you don't buy our product, our product won't exist. But we understand that, you know, uh, that these are diff- different times and choose what you pay. Um, we got a lot of. Um, so if you chose the highest number, we, get, we chucked in a few specials, a crikey talks type situation, a, a book club. Obviously, the free tote bag—you can't go anywhere without a free tote bag these days. So, um, and look, a lot of people—I think the other part of that is a lot of people support Crikey and other independents, basically because they want independent media to exist. And yep. uh, and, and some people, you know, when I did Politifact, you know, twenty thirteen after the after Fairfax. Uh, I was, people would send me money in the mail all the time. I don't know how well, let's me- come.
2: I, and I do want to come on to political facts. Sure. So we'll, we, we will come back to that. Um, just while we're on crikey, another question I have for you, and this is more, again, this is probably more of a reader question than anything else is I've, I felt that the crikey brand as a reader is inextricably linked to the medium in which it predominantly exists, which is Email. Yeah. To me, yeah. I very rarely go on the Crikey website, and I suspect yeah. many of your readers don't. Right. Um, that, in the scheme of things, is actually quite unusual. Yeah. Um. You know, maybe the. You know, I, I I'd actually make the world the argument that the world is swinging back a bit towards email as well. Yeah. Um. But do you? Do you have any ambitions for where you take the Crikey brand? You know, are you, do you just accept that the readers will always see it first and foremost as an email newsletter that drops in there, you know, if, if if they're on the East Coast, that drops in their inbox at lunchtime? Or could you ever get them thinking of spontaneously going onto the website?
3: Yeah, no, that is a great question. I mean, I, I think there are – obviously there are different segments of readers and there are a lot of very, you know, our loyal, rusted-on readers are very much alive to the – uh, midday, uh, you know, an, an addition arrives in my email. And and I think you're right. It's, it's a rare thing, uh, not just in this country, but around the world for that to be so concentrated. I think when we think about how we get new readers, uh, then I think other things come into play, right? So, uh, and I think the website uh, does actually come into play to some extent at that point. Um, so I would like to, and um, we're working towards making the Website are probably a better user experience, um, and I can see the day where a certain number of readers, um, possibly newer subscribers, go to the website or other forms, other channels. I mean, we all, you know, there's been a great explosion in channels, as you know, and and I think you know we haven't really explored too many other channels. I think what we've got to be careful of, though, is exactly what you said, which is a lot of our readers are very, very, uh, you know, comfortable with the daily email and love this idea of getting this edition that arrives, you know, this full edition that arrives in their email. Um, we could play around a little bit with the uh, structures, and we have had to, in fact, uh, play around a little bit to get the size of the email down a little bit for technical reasons because it was uh, not re- reaching some people. Uh, Mike Colton famously tweeted that he wasn't getting his, his um is uh, cracky, So I had to do something to keep Mike happy. So um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, look, so we, I think it's a fluid situation. Um, I think, I feel good that we're in a spot where we've got the email as a daily kind of addition. And I do think it makes us a bit different and a bit special. Um, but I think you have to be also mindful of if you're going to get newer readers in particular, they might be wanting in different ways or maybe they want short form version of the newsletter that takes you to the site uh, you know, maybe an app comes into play as well, a bit more those sorts of things.
2: Well, um, let's go back to Politifact, which is what you what you did after you left, or not immediately, but quite soon after you left Fairfax. Um, which it was a it was a project that lasted a little bit over a year, and it was a it it, it was a fact checking website linked to the sort of I guess the US brand of the same name. And I, you know, I I remember watching it with interest, and someone sort of saying to me at the time, "Oh, I hope." Um, I hope Peter doesn't spend his whole redundancy payout on this um i, I I'm guessing the fact that it lasted a, a, not much more than a year means that you 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 weren't able to to make it a sustainable business
3: no I, I I learned a lot in that year in fact, I had a lot of fun in that year and I learned a lot uh, I certainly learned to to, uh, to try and spend other people's money. <laughs>
2: So, this was your money, was it?
3: well no it was look it was some of it was my money, but in the end of the day we you might recall we had a um a content partnership with channel Seven, and uh that helped a lot, and that enabled me to employ quite a few people who uh many of whom are still beavering away in the news media industry. I'm very happy about that um, Look, I think the lessons out of that were I think it was a really good idea um the lesson I took out of it was: yes, ideas are kind of good and free. <laughs> uh, uh, you need a business model, and I don't think Politifact really had a business model. If you look at Politifact in the United States, the biz- there's kind of two models really. One is a kind of licensing agreement where they license the Politifact brand to other news media, um, and then but they don't do what you know they don't do, for instance, what Crikey does, which is a subscription model. And and I mentioned before, you know, that people wanted, you know, were sending me money. I'd get fifty bucks in the mail from some very nice people. And I, know, I didn't know what to do with it, so I had to send it back, which is, I know, sounds a bit weird, but um, uh, we weren't set up for it. And we, so I think the um, the question remains, really, whether standalone fact checking is a business or rather it's something as is, say, for instance, the RMIT ABC fact check, which is supported by the uni, obviously, and the ABC. Um, I would like to think, and so the the only thing else I'd say is I still think there is a market for um, fact checks that shed light on other areas. So, you know, once I realized that we were going to run out of money, um, around about the October of that 2013, I started thinking about other ideas that you could put, you know, check, you know, other names you could put checks. So you could you know, business check, health check, you know, sport check. Uh, I think there is potential there. Um, I guess the other question then is around about what people are prepared to pay for, and that was my big take out of that. People really, you know, people who loved PolitiFact really loved PolitiFact. Um and I think it's, it's not dissimilar to Crikey. It's just that we've managed to cross that bridge and get them to pay for it. I think there's a lot of people in this country who um, really want to see ind- independent media.
2: And that- I remember. I can't remember who it was who said it. Maybe it was Jeff Jarvis or something like that said, unfortunately, for a lot of models, and that perhaps includes PolitiFat, the business model of you'll miss us when we're gone yeah. isn't a very good business model. <laughs>
3: No, it isn't. No, it makes you feel warm at night, but that's not much of a business model.
2: <laughs> now, um, you also, before you re- return to um, uh, e- editing, um, you were with UTS, um, Professor of Journalism Practice and Head of Journalism, and also involved in the Centre for Media Transition as well. Um, I'm really fascinated by – there's this hey, – it'll be really interesting to see how how disrupted it is. This year and next year, but this industry in churning out people doing journalism degrees that, and I'll be interested to see whether you are you disagree with me on this or not. But it, in my eye, doesn't make them job ready on day one. Um, it, I guess firstly, is that unfair, or if it's fair, what you know, what what's needed for a journalism degree to really make it relevant.
3: Yeah, that, look, that's a really big and complex question because part of it actually is on the demand side. So, part of it is, um, and you know, ask other editors this question. A lot of um, news organizations would say to me, look, they don't have to be fully formed journalists when they come out of uni, but they have to be smart, they have to be willing. Uh, we'll train them to be the types of journalists we want them to be. Um, Now, there's obviously gradations of that. I mean, my view is that um, something like, I mean, maybe say 10%, probably possibly less of journalism graduates are almost born journalists. And they go to university to kind of get a few skills and then they were always going to be journalists. And that kind of feeds back to that argument. Well, if you got them when they were 16 or 17 and made them cadets, they would have been even better journalists by the time they were 21. Did they need a degree? That sort of argument. I think there's a kind of a, a cohort uh, that are deeply engaged in journalism and being uh, having a BA in journalism really gives them a, a head start. Um, does that mean that they're fully formed? Not necessarily. Um, I think the, ans- the short answer to your question uh, from a sort of the journalism education side is that we probably need to do more. Uh, with placements and when they have these placements they have to be more real and in partly uh, when I was at UTS I started uh weirdly it didn't have its own newsroom its own news website and I started a website there which I'm pleased to say is much better than uh, now than when I was there and um and that's a place where um students would go and volunteer and of course there's the wonderful 2SER where a lot of you know if they're keen they go and do there.
2: this is the community radio station
3: yeah the community radio station i mean i think the other... and
2: you presented for a while the fourth estate which, which was, was the was... media show on.
3: yeah it was great and you were on it several times and i thank you for it which is a love that. that's well, right it was only
2: over the road from umbrella house so <laughs>
3: yes um but i think the other question that's sort of buried or the other aspect that's buried in your question is the truth that a lot of students do journalism, but they don't necessarily want to be journalists. Um, There's a whole bunch of reasons for that, perhaps because journalism seems a bit, you know, I I want to write, therefore I'll do journalism, that sort of argument. Um, A lot of uh, students go and they get skills that are very useful in many other ways, but they'll never really use them as a journalist. I mean, that's quite common too. And so that's not a bad thing. I'm trying to think who it was. Oh, he was at Arizona State Uni. Oh, his name may come to me. Dan, Dan. Anyway, what's his name? Oh, anyway, he once said to me, a "Very a doyen of journalism education said to me uh, that journalism degree was like the uh, the ultimate liberal arts degree, and if all else fails, at least you can have great dinner party conversations." And I think that's kind of true, right? You journalism uh, is a very very broad based liberal arts degree. Uh, you do learn a lot about a lot, a little bit about a lot of things, and, and that's what journalists generally are, right? They they know lots about lots about everything, but not much about anything, you know. And, and a bit of
2: fact checking for you, Dan Gilmore, professor of practice at the Walter Cronkite Thank School. Thank you, of yeah, Dan Gilmore. He's been
3: out here <laughs> a couple of times. He's terrific, uh, and he said that to to me, and I thought that was a really good argument. Now, is that uh, is that the sustainable model? Um, well, I mean, there are private colleges around that offer uh, journalism very much in a kind of everything is hands-on, today we're going to write this story, we're going to do that. Um, I d- wouldn't say that the students that come out of those colleges are any better than, you know, the top 10 to 15 percent that come out of UTS or RMIT or anywhere like that. I really think there's a question about journalism being a mindset. Um, do, you, not, you know, do you? It's
2: you, when you look back on, you know, you'd have looked at, a, you know, a face full of, a room full of fresh faces, yes. um, looking at the, you know, former editor in chief of the Sydney Morning Herald, and you must have known at that point most of these people in this room will never be employed as a journalist just because of the odds against it for the number of media jobs. Um, how did that make you feel then, and how does it make you feel now?
3: Yeah, great question. Oh, I, well, I'm a very optimistic person. I wouldn't have been in journalism for 35 years if I hadn't. And uh, I, you're right. I did, you know, occasionally you do a lecture room and there would be two, 300, you know, fresh faces looking down at you. And I uh, always hoped that I engaged them with the issues at hand and that in doing so they added some value to their education. Uh, and yes, I was never naive enough to think they were all going to be journalists. It never really made me sad. Occasionally, I think I got a bit frustrated with it. Um, and, you know, again, that's why I sort of had, a, I've been thinking quite a lot. And when I certainly, when I was at UTS, I thought quite a lot about what is the value of a journalism degree. And I, I you know, I think it's true. I mean, you look at, for instance, if you look at it from the reverse, in that big redundancy round of, um, 2012, 2013 in Fairfax, a lot of people who left, a lot of the journalists who left Fairfax in that round uh, went on to uh, not just PR and comms jobs, they went on to lots of really interesting jobs, you know, policy areas and all sorts of things. Um, So that, again, reinforces to my mind that journalists and the skills that you have as a journalist are actually very applicable across a number of areas uh interestingly i know you probably had the new beats research people from sydney uni on from time to time uh their surveys show that even pe- people who've left journalism still want to go back to journalism and it is uh, i think a bit of a a bit of a virus to use a common word these days it is a bit of a virus i certainly have it uh i i said earlier it's about the only thing i can do it probably is true it's the only thing i'm good for that's why i've had such a long career because i can't do anything else apart from possibly driving an uber car or something
2: <laughs> now, uh, another question I wanted to ask you about, declaration of interest, Mumbrella is a member of the Press Council um, and I know that private media is as well. Is it fit for purpose still?
3: Oh, that, that's great. Yeah, and I should declare that I was the Fairfax representative on the Press Council as well for a year or so. Um, look, I think it it's, it's, could be much more robust. I think there remains this issue about enforcement. Um, I, you know, when I was on it, Julian Disney was the uh, chair and, uh, there was a lot going on. It was sort of around the time of the hacking stuff. Um, and then there was the Finkelstein inquiry that came sort of our version of it. Um, and there was this sort of, the interesting thing was, I used to have this real tension in it because I think the members of the press council, some members of the press council, I always felt were motivated to sort of almost punish news media for you know the bad things that journalists do. And, of course, I would never take that view. I, I didn't think it was a punishment organisation. I think the question, though, that you, you ask is a really good one because the world has changed so dramatically. Um, I think there are other models that are not necessarily industry-based but could be certainly company-based that give people a lot more confidence. Because what is the Press Council about? It, there is a punitive act, a part of it, right? But it's really about trying to enable standards uh, and, you know, create a dialogue really about what is a community standard of what journalists do. Because, you know, if we set ourselves up as, you know, the fourth estate, then we should be held to account for doing our job as the fourth estate. i I tell you
2: a question I find myself asking myself and I don't think I've said this aloud before is Press Council sometimes provides a bit of cover for the likes of the the tabloid magazines you know there was that infamous ruling a few months ago that effectively they didn't have to be held to journalistic yeah, standards after
3: all.
2: Yeah. yeah um you've you you've, you've also got obviously you know it's 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 funded by you know you talked about news Corps, you've talked about nine um a lot of the funding comes from there yeah. um and you know there are many people i know you've you, you've worked for both of them because you have worked for news core as well you're at the australian for a while um but there are, you know, there there are a lot of people who are very critical of some of the things that News Corp do, some of the things that Fairfax do, and I I do wonder whether having this sort of let's call it independent body, mm. but it's broadly funded by those, but the smaller players like we make a contribution, private media makes a contribution, is there a question we're providing a bit of cover for bad behaviour in the industry? with a body that if not unfit for purpose is only just fit for purpose
3: mm, mm. well it's a new thing I, I what i'm trying to search through my brain is what where does the in the sum total of a year where do the apc rulings kind of fall i roughly in Maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, and if someone can find this out. I reckon it's 50-50, roughly, that they, they give a blood nose to the news media and, the, and get let them off, like as yeah, it were. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a set of principles that are good principles. Um, I think those principles should always be under review, uh, and I think we should look at, you know, you mentioned the funding model you know, when you tell people that it's a, it's an independent news media watchdog funded by the news media, <laughs> what's wrong with that?
2: mainly by the big ones at that.
3: Exactly. What's wrong with that sentence? Um, so there is, but, you know, what's the alternate funding model? You know, uh, what do you take, you know, get Google to fund it? Is that Would that make anyone happy? I don't think so.
2: Yeah uh, look I suppose that's the thing it's it's you know much like democracy it's less bad than the alternative perhaps my,
3: yeah my my broad critique of it is that I think it would be great if it were more in the debate uh and and more and and more and quicker off you know it takes a long time to get rulings um and they and if they go against the news media organisation you know they bury them i know they say they don't but they do and i've done it myself you know um and they're also awfully long-winded the way they, you know, the, the structure, the template of the rulings almost says to me, do not read this, you know. And I, I'd be much, really what I'd like to see is an APC chair who was really in the debate, you know, was right in there, you know, on on your show every other week, you know, on TV. I mean, who's the chair of the APC now?
2: I was about to ask you the question, because i so, say Julian Disney was everywhere and yeah. effectively he was ousted, perhaps for that reason.
3: What Julian did see was, in my view, and a lot of people disagree with me with this, and Julian certainly would, I thought was uh, too much of a reformist and brought too much of his previous life to it. Um, you know, interestingly, so when I, you mentioned the Center for Media Transition, so my, I was co-founder with uh, Derek Wilding, who was at the press council when Julian was the, you know, the chair and obviously was very close to Julian. And it was probably about the only thing uh, Derek and I ever really disagreed about was, you know, Julian as head of the press council. You know, I I, I should say that I think Julian was really well-meaning. I don't have any animus against him or anything like that. I just think there is an interesting line between reform. You know, you cannot reform the news media. You need to be inside the debate uh, and, and kind of... You know, there's not the news media is certainly not perfect. I've said this a hundred thousand times. It's certainly not perfect. Journalism is certainly not perfect, uh, and it gets things wrong all the time. But it's not all wrong, and it invariably, you know, if we were at the sort of pearly gates, I'm sure we'd be into you know the good side of heaven. I don't think we're going the other way.
2: Well, Peter, final question for me, and I, I'm I'm glad you are an optimist because <laughs> you don't need me to tell you it's it's not been a, a great year for the the funding and the media. Um, so um, tell me uh, t- tell me what leaves you feeling positive about Crikey in the coming months. What what's what what have you got coming up that we should be excited about?
3: Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, we've been growing our subscription base, uh, and I know others have experienced growth, but the really beautiful thing about Crikey, as I said, is that we can – you know, people paying money. So that's a wonderful thing, and we're going to keep growing. Um, I'm very, very keen to put Crikey um, – see, I could see Crikey growing its footprint a little bit more. I think I've been trying to um, – uh, I, I love the rat baggery of uh, Crikey, and I love its attitude, and I, that, that's part of its DNA, and that's always going to stay. But I think in these times, we need to think more about the, the analysis of why things are happening, the insights we can give people. I think we need to you know, keep doing the investigative journalism as much as we possibly can. We just need to keep growing and gathering people. My, my ideal Christmas gift to self would be 5,000 new subscribers, all of whom were under 35. That would be my ideal gift to self. You should come back to me, uh, you know, in the second week of January to work out whether that happened. Um, I think We'll this- do that, or at least
2: uh, we'll, we'll check in at our current rate every 11 years.
3: Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, by 11 years, I'll, you know, I'll still be editor of Crikey. Um, that's another one of my bold, bold predictions. I remember, uh, just quickly, I remember when I was my farewell from Fairfax, I remember standing up on a table and predicting that I would be the CEO of Fairfax within five years.
2: peter thank you very much for your time my pleasure and that's it for this week but before we go Mumbrella um, 360 is back to reunite the media and marketing industry. Returning with a completely new format, the conference will run over four days, with each day streamed live online, as well as an opportunity for delegates to attend the first couple of days in person at the Four Seasons Hotel in Sydney. The first industry heavyweights confirmed on the lineup include McCann's Creative Chairman, Ben Lilly, K MD, Catherine Williams junkie media's co-founder and editor at large tim duggan and gray group's new york-based global president of health and wellness jason karner virtual tickets start from just 69 dollars. go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella 360 for more information that is it for this week though thank you
0: everyone thanks, thanks tim thank
4: you Toodle-pin.